I'm here with Mike Nelson from Junior's Roasted Coffee in Portland, Oregon. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to see you. Colin, it's great to see you too. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited mm -hmm. for this. Yeah, so I uh, know you from my time in Florida, actually, uh, which I know for you is a, a small portion of your story. Uh, <laughs> for me, it's where I came from. And we, so we met in Tallahassee, which I'll let you explain a bit more. But from my perspective, you know, Tallahassee has uh, some, some people doing great things with coffee, not a whole lot of them. So uh, having at the time, you know, when you, when you showed up, it was kind of like having someone with some really cool coffee experience uh, be around the city for a while. It was a very uh, welcome thing to have. Um, and you were always very generous with your time and with information, passing it on. So, yeah, it's good, oh. to, good to know you from that time. Uh, I, and, you know, oh, go thanks, ahead. thanks for saying so, Colin. It was... Um, you know, I'll share more later, but it, uh, I have nothing but good thoughts about that time. And I feel so lucky to have met you all because you, you all made that experience, um, truly so much better because <laughs> it was, it could have been a, a very stressful time. Sure. Well, yeah. So let's, uh, let's kind of open it up a bit. So give us a little background on what got you started in coffee and how that progressed in the coffee buying eventually. Yeah. Um, well, I started as a, a barista with Stumptown Coffee Roasters, and I remember training as a barista, hearing uh, the owner, Dwayne, talk about this concept of direct trade and, um, you know, paying more for good tasting coffee, you know, got into cuppings and that that's truly what um, just sucked me into the coffee world. Um, I wanted to learn everything about how we bought coffee. I wanted to learn and absolutely memorize everything I could about all of the coffees we offered. Um, nice. You know, and so I started working at the uh, tasting room and doing public cuppings. Um, just to like fully immerse myself in as much uh, farm information as I could. Um, from there, I, uh, I got a little closer to coffee buying, I guess, when I started working with Hart uh, at the very beginning of that company's formation. Uh, that's when I started roasting. I didn't have any okay. roasting experience. And so I uh, trained before we opened uh, with the owner and, um, and then when we opened, I was uh, production roasting, uh, not doing any of the buying, but it was frankly the first time I started meeting coffee importers. And, um, you know, I guess, albeit on the sidelines, like mm -hmm. kind of sort of talking uh, with producers. Um, you, you, were, you were in the room. Yes, yes, I was yeah. in, in the room. And literally that's when I first learned about importers. So that wow. already was, geez, that was five years into. I guess, yeah, if you were working with Stumptown before, they didn't have a whole lot of conversations about importers in that, oh, in that uh, particular company. You're, you're totally right. And I think, too, that it's probably for a couple of reasons. But um, I think, you know, in the early 2000s, importers were definitely getting a bad, uh, a bad rap, too. Um, but with, with Hart, I actually got to, to meet more uh, industry actors, uh, like from roaster manufacturers to importers to just other roasters and trainers and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, I was finishing my undergrad at uh, Portland State, and I was studying sustainability, and I was looking at uh, grad school, um, thinking about grad school. So got into a program at Lund University in Sweden where I started studying climate change impacts on coffee. While I was out there, I got to work a tiny bit with um, the Coffee Collective, which was amazing because I've always admired their sourcing practices uh, and yes. delicious coffee, of course, mm -hmm. but um, just had deep respect for their version of direct trade. Um, 
got to work in some other roasteries out there, but nothing around um, coffee. I, I wasn't buying coffee at the time. Uh, definitely wasn't engaging with any importers uh, out there. Um, after grad school, though, I started, I worked in New York for Blue Bottle and the American Brewery Coffee School as a trainer. Um, before moving to Tallahassee, Florida uh, mm-hmm. for a doctoral program, which was kind of an extension of my graduate studies. Um, and it's in Tallahassee that we started Junior's Roasted Coffee. Yes, so out of your was, house, correct? <laughs> yes, yeah, Junior's is called Junior's because we were roasting on a one and a half kilo proaster that we called Junior mm-hmm. uh, is our baby. We don't, we don't have children. This is our, our baby, <laughs> uh, me and Karen. Um, we were literally roasting out of our house. Um, the landlord helped install the exhaust oh, and that's a actually good okay. put in the 220 volt outlet by climbing wow, under the house. That. Seriously, and he built a cart for the roaster. And um, so we were running this nano roastery out of our house, but this is when I got to have an active role in green coffee buying um, and where we got to start developing our own cost of production covered project. So my, my research while in uh, Florida was starting to look at the impacts that climate change was having on cost of producing a pound of green coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, Long, long, long story short, I mastered out of the program so we could move back to where I call home Portland to grow juniors, but I didn't want to lose all this research. And so um, I wanted this cost of production covered project, this notion of cost of production to inform our green coffee buying practices. Um, At that time, I was in direct contact with one or two importers and that's that's all. By the time we left Tallahassee, I think we were on our, I think we had at that point, you know, we had been buying, we had bought two harvests from the same farm and, you know, that was already exciting because mm-hmm. Florida now uh, seems like a blip in a, in a way, like it, it seems like such a short period of time, but at that time, yeah. it, so much was packed in that, um, yeah, you know, it felt like a, an accomplishment to kind of be leaving Florida with established connections to um, to farms and importers. Yeah. So, so with getting Junior started, uh, that would so that was your first time really buying green coffee as the one, at least making all the decisions. Uh, what as you got into it? What was your biggest misconception as you you uh, sort of got your head wrapped around? how one goes about sourcing green coffee? Oh, that's a great, great question. You know, and I think that you kind of, you got at it earlier when you talked about um, how, you know, companies like weren't, don't really talk about importers. Um, my, my biggest misconception about green buying was that you had to have a PhD in the C market mm-hmm. to buy green coffee. Um, that you had to know the ins and outs of hedging and the stock market um, to buy coffee. And that's absolutely not true. Um, It's a transaction. It can be buying like anything online or at the grocery store. Um, Especially now, a lot of the, uh, there's some good importers that offer like very clear ways to get traceable coffee at the click of a button delivered Absolutely. straight to you. Yeah, mm-hmm. it can, you know, uh, this will, this is a Florida uh, chair, I guess. Uh, it's like, it's great. like buying coffee at uh, Publix versus like Bread and Roses. Was that the co-op? Oh, yes, it was. Yeah. Yep. Hopefully right. it still like, is. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, each of these markets like have different layers of transparency and, um, information provided about these products, you know, and mm-hmm. for sourcing green coffee, you know, you can kind of choose your, choose your market there. Um, yeah. 
But in my experience as, as a barista, companies weren't sharing details of the transaction. Like in other words, like who they were buying coffee from. You know, for all I knew, they were meeting, uh, they were, you know, meeting Arturo in Guatemala, shaking mm-hmm. hands, and then he hands a suitcase yeah. of coffee. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe of not, money. That's, that's uh, what I always pictured. Yeah, or, you know, maybe a very, very large suitcase of green coffee. But yes, I, you know, like I said, I didn't know about importers, but I know it, it can get very confusing. There are lots of actors in this supply stream, but I, you know, I assumed it was because it was too complicated. Um, but, you know, like deals at tables and negotiations and just several origin visits a year um Mm. i was interested in knowing this information so i was paying paying attention but today as a buyer and employer of staff i i know that people have different for different reasons for holding jobs and not all braces want to know this information and i think that that's okay to know you know, the difference between like an importer and a trader. And, uh, you know, I, I think that I want to be able to provide this information for interested staff and customers. I'm going to have this information and I'm so, I'm going to, it's on our website. I'm going to put it on bags if I can, just to put it out there. Um, to provide context too, which I think is some of the reason, you know, uh, buyers or roasting companies are hesitant to share all this information, you know, being afraid that something could be taken out of context. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, any transparency is good transparency. Um, yes. Yeah. Assuming that you have nothing that you're actively trying to hide. If you want to be better, the best way to get better is to to share it with others. Yeah. You know, and buying happens at various scales, like negotiations certainly can take place at big tables uh, with, with briefcases and, Mm -hmm. and origin visits um, and knowing the ins and outs of the stock market. Sure. That can help everyone make informed business decisions, but it is, not a requisite for being a coffee buyer. Mm-hmm. That's 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 my summary. However, with with sharing all this information, mm-hmm. uh, simple question: Why why is it important to know where your coffee comes from? I think it's important for us to make these connections to the things we're consuming because our consumption patterns at this end of the supply stream impact people at the other end of the supply stream. And I think that with globalization, uh, you know, this, there's been this huge disconnect, right? From mm-hmm. consuming uh, countries and producing countries um, or just origins of any of those products. Mm-hmm. Um, it's understanding our role and complicity or the cause of it really, the, the role in these impacts as a consumer or a buyer in these impacts that are causing social harm or causing environmental degradation. That we, you know, knowing about where these things are coming from, I think that we can learn about, about our place, place in it all. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's about taking accountability for these purchases and understanding the gravity of it all. Coffee, for example, is traded as a commodity and that price that it's traded for has been low oh, forever. You know, mm-hmm. it's been low forever. It's fluctuated up and down a bit, but that price has virtually stayed the same. Meanwhile, cost of living is not. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, price that coffee is traded for today may not even cover the cost to produce it. And it's always been this way. Everyone except the producer benefits from these low prices. So it's important to know where, how, and why our coffee is coming from so that we can learn about 
their business, the farm's business reality. What are right. their costs? When do they profit? And how can that business, the farm, sustain itself? Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. the majority of the coffee producers out there, back to your grocery store comparison. I've, I've sort of been using the comparison of like with some of these really large scale farms that are, not that I claim to, I'm not, my, my interaction in the supply chain is not anything within the, the C market and futures trading and any of that. So I don't understand it, but from what I understand, so much of the price is based off of the cost of production for these giant farms in Brazil, Vietnam that are, you know, ha- like really large pieces of land held by uh, sometimes commodities businesses. And, you know, that, that kind of looks like what a Walmart looks like where the supply yeah. chain is, you know, very streamlined. There's a lot of power in the size of those businesses. But the majority of the farmers are more like your co-op. There's, you know, small businesses, Mm -hmm. very small pieces of land. And so it's just a completely different uh, conversation to look at what a sustainable life for that particular farmer is versus uh, what a sustainable way of doing business for a, you know, macro farm in Brazil is. I I think in, I mean, I guess with the exception being in school, I don't think I've ever said context matters so much, but context and mm-hmm. scale matters in these, these conversations. Um, you know, I think that, and to, I, to go back a little bit, I, I also, I, I should say that stock market and, and understanding futures and all that, that there are implications to that and, and knowing just how that does impact everyone in the market. I think like that's, that that's a piece of this puzzle, but I think that oftentimes we just get so um, uh, stuck or just afraid that we can't move forward because we don't understand the the ins and outs of futures and mm-hmm. um, and all, and all that, you know. Right. So I think in so- a way we like trap ourselves or, or prevent ourselves from moving forward. What, what data are you collecting uh, then in order to give yourself a clear picture of uh, a sustainable supply chain? Data that we're collecting, we are, we're collecting lots of data. For our cost of production covered project, what we're doing is, and, and this is the way, you oh, so, know, this is- Sorry, I actually, uh, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. I, I would like to- uh, hear a little bit more about like maybe if you could explain the cost of production project that you are yeah. doing with juniors a bit uh, for Absolutely. those that don't know. Yeah. So, you know, my, my research in Florida was looking at, uh, I wanted uh, something measurable to show how climate change was impacting uh, farmer livelihoods. And so I uh, started uh, with encouragement from a friend looking at uh, cost of production. So, looking at what that was doing to the cost of producing a single pound of coffee. So the more I started looking into this idea, uh, the more I realized that, you know, this is, this is something we should be basing our prices on, right? That that should not just be a base, like that shouldn't just be the minimum. We should be looking at profit margin right. on those costs, right? Gross margin mm-hmm. on those costs. Um, so what we set out to do when we first when we first moved back was to base our contract uh, prices on gross margin on cost of production. So, which was uh, a task. It was a, a daunting task because very few. This information is hard to come by mm-hmm. for everyone, um, even farmers. So. We started working. We started working with farms that were, were interested in basing contract prices on this and and knowing these costs. So start. We worked with them to obtain their production costs, base our contract prices on it, and then together, like, uh, share this with the consumer. That's the other half of the project is trying to figure out how to talk about this stuff how to make this data 
accessible and relevant to consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, so the data that we had to have to collect for this, it can, it's, um, it's business data, you know, it's your production costs, your, uh, right. fix your fixed costs, um, your harvesting costs, other labor costs. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things that most, I won't, I don't know about most, many small businesses, uh, regardless of agriculture, I've, you know, a lot of businesses that I've interacted with don't have a solid handle on their costs. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we wanted to do this to base prices on, on something real, something measurable, because the second that we start, I think that um, <laughs> it's really easy to, with this, there is no, there is no arguing here. Uh, mm-hmm. We, we don't, we don't have to start. Um, how can I put this? It's something measurable for a business's success, right? Like if we, yeah. if we know that cost of production, we can um, agree on a, a sustainable profit margin. Let's say 30% is a healthy gross margin on your mm-hmm production costs to reinvest back into the business. It's a healthy profit. Mm-hmm. So if we agree on that margin together, um, then in a way this becomes the most objective met- metric for um, uh, it's like a, an objective sustainability metric of sorts. Right. Yeah. There's, um, there's, a, there, there's no like crossing your fingers and hoping that it works out. It's just a very straightforward uh, yeah. Transaction. It feels feels honest. Yeah, there are lots of concepts out there that have been trying to to measure this kind of thing. From like, there's living wage, uh, fair trade was was looking at some of these metrics um, early on. Um, so you know they set their price on on some some of these metrics. Mm-hmm. But um, this was something real. It was about the business's success. So we can say like, okay, you're paying, you're paying yourself. Uh, great, great, you're paying all your staff. Uh, great. How can this business succeed? Because it's also going to help our business succeed. Right. Right. So, um, so after obtaining that data, which we eventually we built a, uh, we built a model to plug this data into that we're sharing with producers. Uh, they have access to, we bounce this back and forth, come up with this cost of production, mm-hmm. uh, tell that, you know, it spits out that, that 30% margin on those uh, gross margin on those costs. Mm-hmm. And then we've agreed on our contract price. And this we're taking, we're collecting this data every uh, harvest too, because you know, like you were getting at before, um, cost cost of production it varies farm to farm. Yes, you know, not just country to country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that countrywide uh, reports it's a step in the the right direction, but I think that there's obviously lots of gaps there, and it's not giving us the full picture. Oh yeah. So, um, yeah. so we're, and it, we're and, yeah, and I can say from uh, the work. So we, we work with a, a group of, uh, or an export group in Colombia called Azahar uh, mm-hmm. um, and uh, wonderful people. And they've done very similar research on their own to uh, what it sounds like you've been doing. Uh, and even for them, they collected data from hundreds of farms to come up with like kind of where they're at right now is they have some regional, uh, like for the, they did it in three different distinct growing regions in Colombia, and they came up with, uh, um, see what I'm saying, exact numbers, which I can't be ex- exactly quoted on. I should have notes here for that. But the, the point is, so for us, we buy coffee from, uh, from two, two growing regions in Colombia. Mm-hmm. The study showed that in, in one of the growing regions, which is Huila, the uh, the cost of production, average cost of production, price a pound per farmer. Uh, they wanted to make sure, and they, another thing they did was they broke it down into like uh, 
a minimum wage, or they Mm -hmm. said they did poverty line metrics, minimum wage, and then a more sustainable wage, which is somewhere around that 30% gross profit margin. And what they saw was in Wheela, the cost was somewhere around the $2 range at a farm farm gate price. In Nariño, it was uh, almost $5 for the same Wow. Target metrics. And we, the majority of the farmers that we buy coffee from are in Nariño. Uh, wow. We love the coffee there so much and we want to keep buying. Yeah. So for us, it was a very clear thing of, well, we just have to, we just have to pay this. We got to figure it out. If we want the coffee, we have to make sure that, and, and we, and some of these farmers now we've been buying at those prices for uh, the last three, four years. And uh, it's, it's shown already super positive results. Oh, and that's amazing. I think that just region to region to show how dramatically different uh, production costs can can be is astounding. And -hmm. I think can have some very serious impacts on consumer mindset too. Um, But I think it, you know, it's contextualizing this stuff how do we make this digestible for people because right. i want to yeah too. compelling yeah uh i you know when we first started this project i started trying to put it in the context of of us b- both being businesses right mm-hmm. that producers or uh, uh farms or businesses just like us and if they can't cover their costs and make pro- uh, profit on uh this transaction then the business is not going to succeed. Right. I had a customer once say, well, why don't they farm something else? And, <laughs> and I, I, I love that question because honestly, I think it's a question that it, it's worth being brought up for some farmers. Like it's, we don't right. deserve their labor if we can't pay them. Right. It. Like it's, I ultimately, it's, I, I want to see the people that we interact with, be successful. And if, and if the, and if this kind of data driven approach shows them that they're just not competitive in the market farming coffee, then I would rather yeah. a farmer know that and have, while they still have resources to make a change. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with, with that, I'm, mean, that's a, it's a very slippery, very slippery slope, but, um, I think that when I, when I first heard that, when I first heard that question, you know, I said, well, it's not just this single farm that's struggling covering production mm-hmm. costs. This is, there's lots of farms. It doesn't yeah. matter if it's specialty or not. Mm-hmm. We need to pay more for all coffee because all coffee costs more than we think it does to produce. Right. Yes. So, I think that it's kind of painting this picture that this is, this is not just a, this is a systemic thing. This is the dynamic and the way it's been. And we want to, we need to change it if we're going to continue to drink coffee this way. Right. Uh, But, you know, so contextualizing that um, stuff is something we've been working on from the beginning. So in addition to collecting uh, specific farm information, production costs, and that, that kind of data too can be like, has been very like country specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we've had to kind of shift this uh, model to kind of like fit the context in Burundi is very different than the context in Guatemala. Absolutely. Um, so after we collect this data, I'll talk with the importer and uh, exporter in some cases, and we'll gather FOB, we'll gather Farmgate and of course uh, X Warehouse to put it on our now put it on our website for customers. So it's putting all of this out there for that context. It's really on, amazing work. On our bag, thanks, Colin. Mm-hmm. On our bags, you know, when we first started this project. So before we had this information on the website, uh, what we would do is list the C market at the price that we purchased, or you know, at the date that we uh, had took possession of the coffee uh, or even the lowest point that sea market hit in that mm-hmm. year. Um, what it cost 
the farm to produce that coffee and then what we paid and what that went into. So like mm-hmm. coffee's traded as a commodity because that can still just be like, you know, mind blowing to hear for industry and non-industry. Right. Coffee's traded as a commodity. The lowest price it was traded for was this point during this harvest year. It cost this much to produce. So they can already see, well, wait a second. That's, that's nowhere close. Right. That's a lot more than what the price was. Yeah. Yeah. And then this is how much we paid. The only piece of the puzzle on that, that bag that wasn't answered was, well, why, why am I paying, you know, 17, $18 then yes. for this 12 ounce bag of coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always wanted something like that to be brought up in a consumer interaction, but uh, honestly it never does. Yeah. But so it's something that we're like, working into the website now and wanting to address is um, providing all of our own costs um, to show right. to show the why. I think yeah. this is the, the really important next progression for this kind of thing, because it is when we are focusing so much on farmer costs, it's yeah, ultimately for us, it's when we're constantly looking at green coffee prices, like for me, I can see like at this point, I can look at people if people show their, uh, you know, their FOB costs or their X warehouse costs. I I get a decent idea about how they measure up compared to the the industry at large. But for the average consumer, yeah, you know, three dollars a pound is kind of shocking when you're paying <laughs> the equivalent of you know twenty five thirty dollars a pound sometimes roasted yeah. in a bag. So yeah, uh, yeah, breaking down the cost of you know, shrinkage, your own labor insurance, rent, all of these things. They, and it's, it's good for us to be doing that all the time too and evaluating, are we being responsible stewards of our own you know, particular area of influence? Yeah, you know, in the beginning and like some of the earlier events that we would have, I, you know, I, I would talk about just how well the roasters are doing. Um, and just how nice our margins are on that retail coffee in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Um, though that wasn't to, it wasn't to just, you know, paint um, um, independent roasters as, as evil. It's just that it's, it's time that we're, we talk about these margins with our producer partners too. Yes. And be ready to, to talk about this stuff, to be, to, to be transparent, you know, once we started really getting into that stuff, we knew that we had to do it even just within our own cafe with staff. Mm -hmm. So we started, uh, we'll have meetings together to talk about P and L's with them and how we're doing and why things are the way they, the way they are. And we've even, um, had events together where, meetings together where we'll talk about taxes together and ways to get, uh, ways to file. And, you know, mm-hmm. just to, oh, that's awesome. it's, it's not the most um, stimulating no. uh, conversation, but, um, you know, that it's, that stuff, it it's matters. Very important. Yes. Yeah. So I, you know, I think that it's probably pretty obvious at this point, just how much this isn't like any other, certification conversation right that it's this stuff is not that easy to talk about it's so hard to just package into this neat uh, uh, to put a nice bow on it you know mm-hmm. for us yeah. cost of production covered has kind of been our attempt at that kind of thing where we say you know we even like had a, a wi-fi password that said ask me about cost of production hoping that people would ask and then we can get yeah, into take it. The hand. yeah but you've got like you've just got such a small window of time to, to right. talk with people most often so um you know custom production though that's like we're constantly trying to make this applicable to consumers but it's a work in progress definitely uh well let's pivot a little bit here yeah. and I, I would like to get your opinion on you know I guess we, there's an assumption that we're all sort of looking at coffee quality in the same way. Uh, do you think that the quality is subjective 
or is it more objective in your view? And then additionally, how should that metric be tied to the price paid for coffee? Yeah, that's a great question. I think about this thing every day. I think that in, you know, I thought about it at, uh, while in school and trying to figure out some way to bring quality into sustainability and to uh, have that be related. I wanted to believe, I want to believe that there's an objective truth to quality, mm-hmm. but I think there's enough gray area and wiggle room to leave us in an existential crisis <laughs> uh, where any given coffee event, you know, you and I can just be there rattling our brains talking about cost of production and then suddenly quality ends up wrapped up in there and we're like, ah, oh, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. We had an event scheduled right before the pandemic for SCA. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were calling it- uh, oh, You were gonna quality. be hosting it, that's right, I forgot. Yeah, it was gonna be called Quality Time Together. And <laughs> we were going to talk about quality in the context of cost of production. Um, I think that the specialty coffee industry hinges on this question in many ways. I think within the coffee industry, we have an objective scoring system that sets the divide between specialty and commercial, commercial or commodity. Mm-hmm. These categorizations have huge consequences and implications for prices being paid to producers. Q certified professionals go through intense, rigorous training to calibrate on what makes a 79 point coffee and an 80 point coffee. Right. And further, what makes a cup of excellence scoring coffee? Mm-hmm. In my experience, though, I know Q graders who have two to three point gaps in how they score from each other. If we're basing coffee prices on score, this kind of discrepancy is problematic and suddenly becomes subjective and arbitrary. As a non-Q certified coffee professional, I want to drink, you know, delicious coffee, uh, air quotes, but the range of my of my good is likely 10 to 15 points. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's uh, for, for non, for non coffee people. Well, first of all, you know, what is, what is points? What are these points? And right. Uh, and for for non coffee people yeah. at this point in the conversation, I do apologize for the many things that <laughs> need more <laughs> explanation. Yes. It, you know, um, this scoring system is, um, I think it's it's a good way to so being Q certified is like being a sommelier, I guess, but in the coffee industry, um, it's cal it's intense calibration, right? So that yes, theoretically, well, officially at first, and then hopefully over time, we can all sit down and say yes, that is an eighty six point coffee. I know it when I I knew it when I smelled it. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> or you know. Um, but I believe that we've built a, a niche within a niche industry that fixates on 86 plus coffees. Yes. And, and we've been building a case that higher quality coffee will somehow raise consumer awareness about low prices in some way. But I think that by fixating on, uh, high scoring coffees, we miss out on the cost of production reality and an opportunity with consumers. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, for many producers, cost of production for the whole farm may be the same price regardless of quality, regardless of their A's and of their B's. Yes. Uh, and as Umeko pointed out, like, most consumers might actually prefer mid-scoring coffees. I think, so, yeah, I think there's something to, to that. Yeah, that what, what does this do to our reality? Why we've been you know, uh, preaching these 86 plus coffees, but that might actually, that might, that might resemble a smaller portion of a farm's production. Costs may be the same, but also maybe to get to that 86, we made so many requests of this farm without actually compensating them to make these changes. Mm 
uh, I think that it's, it's leaves a lot out. I think that what this has created in the specialty industry is we need to pay more for coffee because 86 plus coffees, we need to pay more for coffee because wow, that tastes great, doesn't it? Like you can taste the difference in this Gesha variety versus this Kutura. Um, and I think that's uh, problematic. We need to pay more because it costs more to produce. And yes, it tastes fantastic. Yes. So I, you know, I think that we've been, you know, this isn't to say that these metrics are, are all bad. I think that calibration, especially in a roastery is so important, um, you know, but I think that basing pricing off of quality is very problematic. Um, I think that having two different industries in a way, you know, painting it as two different industries, I think is problematic. Mm -hmm. um, flavor is subjective. Uh, though the sensory lexicon has been uh, trying to make the flavor objective just for yes. further calibration purposes. But mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, that those kinds of efforts uh, from the sensory lexicon and world coffee research, I think it's good for calibration stuff, but I think it's still important to acknowledge that there is subjectivity in, in flavor and, and quality. Yes. And why does chocolate, nutty and creamy from brazil cost one thing and then uh tropical fruit floral from panama costs you know, 20 times whatever that is yeah yes. yeah you know i think that you know the flavors flavors aside i think that um moving moving forward you know i think i've been hearing more and more uh from producers of cases where prices paid to them were manipulated uh, based on um, cup score, where uh, buyers intentionally scored these coffees lower so they can get a lower price. Yeah. You know, meanwhile, you know, only to later they submitted it to a Q grader and- Right. Oh, it improved two points in shipping. That's crazy. Yeah, that or, or after the fact they said, wait, you sold your coffee for what? This is, this is an 85, but you sold it as an 80. So, you know, I think that, uh, I think that cup score, you know, can be good in roasteries and be, can be good as somewhat of a universal language acknowledging mm -hmm. this gray area, but I think we've got to use it for good and not evil. <laughs> Well said. Yeah, I think <laughs> it, that's as far down the rabbit hole as I think we can get in this uh, time together. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I there's yeah. a I'd love to. I I want to make a whole nother, you know, podcast subject just to have to hear about your uh, just your studies that you did on how climate change affects coffee. That's all. I could I could go down some some different rabbit holes, but. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. That, that, I mean, that is, you know, and that is tied in all of these different um, questions, you know, we've been, we've been talking about, I think, to, to if I was to wrap up the rabbit hole of quality, uh, more nicely, I guess I would say that quality or um, prices should be attached to the cost of producing in the margin rather than uh, quality. So like when we're talking with producers, we're we're talking with them because they're interested in the project. And then, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and then we'll talk about samples, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think really simply one thing that we've come back to in a, you know, generally come to the, a similar conclusion from a, a couple of different conversations that we've had is, you know, quality does deserves to be rewarded after the, cost that that first price has yeah. been established you know like a, assuming every all the other costs have been factored in and covered for the baseline price yeah. then we can start talking about a quality premium yeah i think and yeah absolutely i think it's not to say that um 
I think that quality based premiums can be worked into the um, worked into the contract. You know, we just released, uh, we just started working, we released another cost of production covered uh, coffee, uh, working with an exporter in Brazil. And after getting the cost of production data, we saw that the margin, 30% margin on cost of production was, uh, it was much lower than their FOB. And that gap was all quality based premiums. Hmm. So this exporter was paying amazing prices for this coffee. That's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, I would love uh, to be connected with this particular exporter. I would it's... love to give them a shout out. It's uh, FAF, Fazenda Epiental ah. Fortaleza. Yeah. Yes. Yep. I'm familiar. That's good to know that I've, I've only heard good things about FAF. Really good prices to. Uh, All right. Produce. Shout out to FAF. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Colin too, I um, just want to share that I'm not, um, I've got, I've got more time to talk if, if I didn't want you to think that like I had to get off. Oh, the... oh, no, thank you. It's actually, it's unfortunately me that'll have to, to end <laughs> this conversation pretty soon. Um, but I, I did want to, to ask you one more question here. What advice would you give to budding coffee professionals that are looking uh, to be involved in green coffee sourcing one day? I, I think that what I would say first is that you don't have to do something one way just because companies who have grown into bigger companies did it that way 10 years ago. Mm. Um, you know, you can, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of room to innovate. Um, there is so much work to do with pricing transparency and it should be done. Um, because, you know, it, whether or not like you're designing your own system and uh, your own software for coming up with um, like cost of production and this and that, it's, uh, there's no excuse because there are importers actually doing mm. really good work in transparency. Find yes. them, work with them, talk with them. Um, collaborative uh, coffee source, um, Terra Negra in Guatemala, uh, Nordic Approach does really great work. I'm gonna yes. miss just so many uh, Red oh, Fox. Yeah. Ugh, there are so many importers out there that mm -hmm. are doing um, really solid work. Atlas has got some really good folks there. Yes. Uh, Cafe Imports is doing cool stuff. And, you know, there's, there are importers doing really good work. So right. find them, talk with them, and ask them questions. Um, build a relationship with them. Our most trusted relationships are with importers. They're the bridge builders who has, help us establish these long term um, relationships with producers. So that, mm -hmm. uh, producer that we worked with um, when we started juniors in Tallahassee, we're still working with that farm. And this year we're hoping will be, we're hoping will be the first uh, cost of production covered year. Very and good. It's because entirely because of the importer. I have no direct connection to um, the producer, Olven. Mm -hmm. It's been through the importer and because they want to continue to facilitate that and because they want to be open and be transparent. Yeah, that's um, sure. In addition, I'd say it's going to take more time than you think to, to uh, do any, anything. <laughs> yes. So um, depending on what's happening in the world and so plan ahead, be prepared for the unexpected, for the uh, roaster, uh, roaster owners, um, for me, this is not a nine to five job that I can clock in and out of. I'm WhatsApping with producers on my drive home from the cafe, yes. uh, like in the car. Uh, or, hours of the day. Yeah, or like at home, like after I brush my teeth, like I'm sitting in front of the computer and looking at this spreadsheet and fine tuning this uh, cost of production questionnaire, but then also doing a bazillion other things. So mm -hmm. I think though that kind of the minimum is, is finding uh, good importers and asking them questions. We have a, um, a set 
you know, I have this kind of minimum of things that I would like to, to get from an importer, like questions answered. And it's mm-hmm. not just, it's not, you know, necessarily demands. It's more like a checklist of things that I would like to see and know. Um, and then we'll move forward, you know? Right. Yeah. That is all like spot on from my experiences too. Can't, I can echo all of that. <laughs> uh, Mike, how can people get in touch with you if they, if they have more questions? You know, I think um, uh, following us on Instagram um, and, you know, you can always, you can always DM us. Um, I do not handle our Instagram at all. That is 100% Karen. Uh, while you're at it, you should follow, follow Gilder Cafe uh, on Instagram. Yes. Uh, that is our, our cafe. Um, that's where we're posting most often. I'm also trying to post more on our blog, on our website. And that's mm-hmm. kind of usually where I'll elaborate more on each cost of production coffee that is being released. Um, and more details about the project on there too. Um, yeah. Very yep. good. Well, thank you so much, Mike. Really. So good to catch up with you. Likewise. Really hoping, uh, are you going to be, you thinking about going to uh, New Orleans? (laughs) Oh, geez. I wish we're actually opening a second cafe at that time. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. It's, we're opening a cafe at that time, um, which is going to be a a big, big undertaking. It's in this, it's in downtown Portland at this, um, a bookstore called Powell's bookstore. Um, so it's going to be in inside there. So it's very cool. It, that's in the works, but I, I really hope to see you soon, Colin. And I hope, yes, um, we maybe I'll up. come out for a visit sometime. I need to visit Portland. It's on my list. That would be amazing. We've also, we were talking about a, um, doing a, a cost of production event in Chicago once upon a time. You don't say pre pandemic. Yeah. And I've never, I've never been, I would love to, to visit there so well uh we will i personally am am here for that let's let's make it happen definitely yeah it's really nice talking with you colin yeah same all right going to end it i will see you soon mike all right see you colin